Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti. If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. His uncle had fought for brutal year after brutal year to subdue the Mardi, then gone on to seize the Seleucid fortresses that guarded the Caspian gates. His father, miraculously, had then gone on to capture Media and Mesopotamia, and then somehow, through victory or guile, to capture a Seleucid king. For the young Prince Phraates II, the only concern was that when it came his time to rule, there'd be no more lands to conquer. At least that's how things must have seemed way back in 138, when Phraates II was just a boy. But still, it was a glorious image to ponder. His father, Mithridates, in ultimate triumph, Demetrius hauled before him in chains, ready to meet his fate. The king commanded his defeated rival be paraded through the major cities, a useful example of the utter futility of resisting Parthian rule. Phraates had been so young at the time, he may not have fully understood how newly won and uncemented were Mithridates' gains. Once he'd been used to maximum effect, Mithridates showed his royal prisoner the quality of his mercy. According to Justin, Mithridates displayed a kingly magnanimity and sent Demetrius to Hyrcania, where he not only provided him with the mode of life of a king, but also gave him the hand of his daughter in marriage promising to restore to him the throne of Syria, which Tryphon had seized in his absence. Gilded captivity, a royal marriage, and the dangled lure of eventual return, certainly not the worst of fates for a vanquished enemy king. For Mithridates, now calling himself King of Kings, there were a few immediate priorities— the remnants of Demetrius's army had to be captured, killed, or driven off, and the Parthian hold on the Persian Gulf still needed reinforcing. 
But once these tasks had been accomplished, more possibilities opened up. Such as? Well, there'd never been a better chance to try and conquer Syria. Why not forge a Parthian empire that stretched to the Mediterranean? But none of this was meant to be. For Phraates II, thinking back, the sunlit memory of his father's triumph was only thrown into stark relief by the bitter darkness that followed. Mithridates had barely shipped Demetrius off east before he was struck down by a sudden devastating illness. The Babylonian diarist, quoted by historian John D. Granger, records that an unnamed ruler, likely Mithridates, suffered a stroke in 138, and though he survived, he was virtually incapacitated. At this critical moment, the greatest ruler the Parthians had known was no longer able to lead them. Though Phraates II was his father's favorite, he was still too young to rule, and it was decided that Mithridates' wife and queen, Rienu, would serve as regent until he came of age. One potential source of conflict was the satrap of Media, Bagassus who I previously said was Mithridates' brother, but may have been one of his sons. An older son with a power base and a serious claim to the throne. But Bagassus signaled his abiding loyalty to his father and younger brother. Another potential source of conflict was Phraates II's uncle, Mithridates' brother, Artabanus. After Phraates I and Mithridates I, it's unclear why their mysterious third brother wasn't next in line for the throne. It's possible he was getting too old or lacked the requisite talent or ambition. All we can safely say for the moment is that he also signaled his loyalty. To outward appearances, Mithridates I was still the Parthian king of kings though he was likely seen much less in public, and Phraates II took on a larger role. But in reality, decisions were being made by Queen Re'inu and her husband's advisors. No matter how hard the family tried to keep the king's condition a secret, rumors spread, as rumors do, and quickly led to conflict. Most immediate and threatening was the revolt of an unnamed Parthian general, either trying to take a crack at the throne or just unhappy with the new arrangements. The Babylonian diarist, quoted by Granger, reports that the revolt was put down and the general executed. Parthian weakness may have also energized ongoing resistance in Elemius. A local figure named Tigraios seized the Elemian capital of Susa and killed the Parthian satrap. He then marched into the Cherusina, where the Seleucid satrap, Hispaeosines, was forced to defend his territory. The rival capitals of Susa and Cherax were entreposed near the Persian Gulf, servicing a lively seaborne trade from India and Arabia. While Elemius controlled the northeast gulf, Cherax controlled the southern coast as far as Tylos, modern Bahrain, 
or possibly even further. If Tigrayos defeated Hispeosines, he might be able to turn the gulf into his very own private lake. For the Parthians, this was a nightmare scenario. They wanted to integrate Susa and Cherax with their existing trade hubs at Seleucia and Babylon. So keeping an eye on the brewing conflict was a pretty high priority. They installed a man named Pilinisu of Akkad as their new Babylonian viceroy, and likely told him to do what he could to exploit the situation. Around this time, events in Mesopotamia enter a bit of a dark age. After Demetrius was sent back east, western sources returned their attention to events in the Syrian kingdom, mainly the defeat of the usurper Diodotus Tryphon by Demetrius's brother, Antiochus VII. But even the Babylonian diarist, pretty reliable for local affairs, has a depressing gap from 136 to 134. Granger notes that when he resumes, the diarist reports ongoing conflict. Fighting in Alemius, a massacre in Susa, even some sort of alemian cherusene alliance of convenience against the Parthians. He also records the replacement of Pilinisu with a new viceroy named Teudesisu which may be a Babylonian take on Theodosius. So, from 137 to 133, very formative years for the young Parthian prince Phraates II, the record is virtually silent, with one notable exception. We do have a record of serial escape attempts by the captive Demetrius II, which in some ways isn't too surprising. His own father, Demetrius I, endured 18 years as a Roman hostage, spending every waking minute trying to get back home. Given such a stark example, it's hard to imagine Demetrius II just meekly accepting his fate. It also explains why Antiochus VII was hell-bent on rescuing his brother. As mentioned earlier, Demetrius had been ordered to live in Hyrcania, very likely in Hecatompylos, and marry one of Mithridates' daughters, a royal princess named Rhodaguna. Who exactly was Rhodaguna? Well, first off, she was Phraates II's sister, which made the future Parthian king and captive Seleucid king into brothers-in-law. But apart from that, we're very lucky that an incident of Rhodaguna's was preserved as a Parthian legend. The story goes that, on some unspecified occasion, Rhodaguna was preparing for a bath when she learned of a local revolt. She immediately swore not to bathe or brush her hair until the revolt was put down, then strapped on her armor, rode into battle, and led her forces to victory. After this, Rhodaguna was depicted on the seals of the kings of Parthia with long, disheveled hair. Another historian describes a golden statue of Rhodaguna with her hair half-braided and half-unbraided. Long story short, assuming the legend has a grain of truth, Demetrius may have found his new wife as formidable as Cleopatra Thea. 
The historian Justin, in a lengthy passage, describes Demetrius' stay in Hyrcania. He says that Demetrius could not bear his captivity, luxurious though it was, and he secretly planned an escape to his kingdom. He apparently had some help. Justin introduces a friend of Demetrius named Calamander, who, after Demetrius's capture, had hired guides and come from Syria to Babylon through the Arabian deserts, dressed as a Parthian. It's unclear from the context whether Calamander proceeded on to Hecatompylos or holed up in Babylon while Demetrius tried to get to him. Either way, both Demetrius and Calamander were caught by the Parthians and brought before Phraates for judgment. Justin reports that Calamander was not only pardoned, but even rewarded for his loyalty, while Demetrius was severely reprimanded by Phraates and sent back to his wife in Hyrcania, with orders that he be kept under stricter guard. This incident happened early on, after which several more years passed, during which Demetrius and Rodaguna had at least two children. This was also the time frame when Demetrius grew his enormous Dothraki hipster beard. But Justin relates that eventually, Demetrius took the same friend, Calamander, and ran off once more, only to meet the same ill fortune as on the previous occasion. He was caught almost at the frontier of his kingdom, and brought back to the king who, in his displeasure, had him removed from his sight. Phraates shipped Demetrius back to Hyrcania, but this time with a twist of the knife. According to Justin, he presented Demetrius with a pair of golden dice. Depending on your interpretation, it may have implied that Demetrius was a restless child who needed toys to play with, or it may have been a subtle warning against taking more reckless chances. It was also around this time that the city of Edessa was captured by the Arab king Osroes, likely with Parthian support. With a nominal ally on Syria's doorstep, it's pretty likely the Parthians were favored with up-to-date intelligence, which meant they knew all about Antiochus VII, his marriage to Queen Cleopatra Thea, his defeat of Tryphon, his humbling of Judea, and his ultimate success in reforging a Syrian kingdom. Whether they knew that he planned to invade is a bit more open question. Meanwhile, on the eastern frontier, things remained problematic. In the 130s BC, names, dates, and events in Bactria start to resemble a Rorschach test, with jarring snapshots hinting at something deeper. We know that roughly around this time, the border city of Iconum, likely ancient Eucratidea, was completely and totally abandoned. According to historian Frank D. Holt, coin hoards recovered from the site appeared to suggest an urgent departure with the expectation of return. But, well, things didn't quite work out. Exactly why the inhabitants left is still a bit of a mystery. Holt acknowledges that Occam's razor, 
fleeing a massive Scythian invasion is still a strong possibility. Or they could have lost their nerve and staged a mass preemptive exodus before the Scythians even showed up. Or there could have been multiple waves of invaders, maybe Scythians followed by Yueshi. Granger notes the invaders may not have even been nomads, but instead other Hellenes, a splinter branch of the royal family or one of the Indo-Greek kings. There's also the question of where they all went. Some likely fled west to the capital of Bactra, others may have remained in the region, while others fled east into India, where they most likely sought the protection of the powerful King Menander. Then there's the question of the ultimate fate of the Bactrian king, Heliocles I. He may have held out for a time in Bactra, or he may have channeled the spirit of his father, Eucrates the Great, and rode into battle against the invaders. All we know is, however he died, the Bactrian kingdom died with him. Phraates II must have followed events and responded to them as best he could, but for us, for now, it's still a bit of a mystery. Regardless, in 132 BC, the focus returned to the Parthian Empire. Because, after six years of lingering on, Mithridates I finally died. To both the majority, sheltered from his illness, and to those who'd governed behind the scenes, his passing had the same result. Phraates II, who was now of age, would become the Parthian king. Possibly their youngest king to date, but that would only put him on par with the Seleucids, who seemed content to follow anyone who conjured the memory of Alexander. Before Phraates could be installed, there were royal ceremonies to perform. Like the previous Arsacid kings, Mithridates was laid to rest in Nisa the first Parthian royal capital founded by Arsaces I. But in honor of his legendary status, the name of the city was changed from Nisa to Mithridatkert. After the burial, it was on to Arsak, where Phraates lit his own royal fire, was crowned by the Parthian house of Surin, and adopted both his throne name and his royal titles. His throne name was technically Arsaces VI, but to avoid confusion, we'll just keep calling him Phraates II. Mithridates had been the first Parthian king to depict himself on coins with a Greek-style portrait and royal diadem, the standard Greek symbol of kingship, and had also taken the title Philhellene, or Friend of the Greeks. Both were designed to make his rule more palatable to his new Greek subjects. As mentioned earlier, Mithridates had also taken the title of King of Kings, the Babylonian Shar Sharani. Like his father, Phraates II depicted himself on coins with a Greek-style portrait and a royal diadem, and also took the title Friend of the Greeks. But with no great deeds to match his father, he refrained from calling himself King of Kings. Instead, he took the title Great King 
and the more unusual king of the lands, the Babylonian Sharmatati. As 132 became 131, King Phraates II likely heard the rumors of a Seleucid military buildup. And then, sometime that year, messengers from King Osrois of Edessa, the Parthian early warning system, likely brought news that Antiochus VII had crossed the Euphrates with an army of 80,000. This was quickly followed by news that a Parthian general had been engaged and defeated near the city of Arbella, on the eastern side of the Tigris. Wherever he was based, Babylon, Seleucia, or Ecbatana, Phraates II gathered his forces and prepared to confront the Seleucids. Justin reports that on Antiochus's approach, many eastern princes came to meet him, surrendering their persons and their thrones with curses of the arrogance of the Parthians. These princes may have been the Parthian subkings of Adiabene, Media Atropatine, and Persis. Justin continues that Victorious in three battles, Antiochus seized Babylon and began to be dubbed the Great. Thus, as all the peoples were defecting to him, the Parthians were left with nothing but the lands of their fathers. While he wintered in Babylon, according to Granger, coins of Antiochus were minted at Seleucia on the Tigris, at Uruk in southern Babylonia, at Susa, and at Ecbatana, meaning that even while he was still in Mesopotamia, Antiochus already had significant support in Media. If this was the case, Phraates may have been forced to retreat as far as Ragai, near the Caspian Gates, or even all the way back to Hecatompylos. If so, those are some pretty staggering losses, particularly during a single year. And, to all indications, Antiochus was just warming up. In the spring of 130 BC, the Seleucids entered the Zagros passes and marched on through into Media. If he hadn't been compelled to yet, this action likely prompted Phraates to retreat to Hecatompylos, leaving behind a strong enough force to hold the Caspian Gates. It also compelled Phraates to do something that no Parthian king had ever done, except possibly Arsaces II. According to Diodorus Siculus, Phraates II sent envoys to negotiate peace. Antiochus replied that he'd only grant peace if Phraates freed his brother, evacuated all conquered territory, and paid Antiochus tribute for his Parthian holdings. With his father's legend a constant companion, even asking for peace was likely humiliating. There was no way Phraates could become a Seleucid vassal. Diodorus records another battle. If so, it must have been won by Antiochus who spent the summer consolidating his hold on the major Median cities. The following year, he may have intended to force the gates and push into Parthia, re-extending Seleucid control to lands lost for half a century. In the meantime, Justin reports that 
Because of the large numbers of his men, Antiochus had distributed his army in winter quarters throughout the cities. From his royal capital of Hecatompylos, King Phraates II made desperate moves in line with the desperate times. First, according to Granger, he recruited up his army and hired mercenaries from the Scythian nomads beyond the eastern border. Phraates also sent agents into Median cities to solicit the help of Parthian partisans, as well as those who were simply annoyed at, as Justin puts it, having to supply provisions and tolerate the offensive behavior of the soldiers. But Phraates saved his best trick for last— After eight years spent as a Parthian captive, the 28-year-old King Demetrius II was set free. According to Justin, Phraates dispatched Demetrius to Syria with a Parthian escort to seize the throne, so that Antiochus would be brought back from Parthia to defend his own territory. It's unclear what route Demetrius took, Phraates certainly didn't want him bumping into Antiochus' forces in Media or Mesopotamia along the way. I'm also not sure I'd buy the whole Manchurian candidate logic. Demetrius had tried to get home several times, and freeing Demetrius from Parthian captivity had been one of Antiochus' demands. But either way, Phraates hoped to sow dissension within the Seleucid royal family by forcing them to confront the reality of two Seleucid kings. But that was really a long-term strategy. Phraates' real plan, and it was pretty sharp, relied on the following logic. With Antiochus's army divided among the various cities, Phraates could field a larger force than any individual Seleucid detachment. In fact, as Granger notes, Antiochus himself likely had only a small force with him, probably his personal guard, and it was also likely common knowledge which city the king resided in. On a prearranged date in the dead of winter, the population of one of the cities revolted against the Seleucids. The city in question was likely chosen since it was near the one where Antiochus was based. And, as Justin reports, when word of this came to Antiochus, he advanced with the contingent which was wintering with him in order to assist those who were closest at hand. Along the way, out in the open, in perfect terrain for nomadic horse archers, Antiochus came across Phraates II and the bulk of the Parthian army. The ancient sources are not very kind to Antiochus's companions. Diodorus credits Antiochus's general, Athenaeus, as being the first to flee, while Justin describes Antiochus being deserted by his craven troops. But they're uniform in praise of Antiochus himself. Diodorus reports that he urged his friends to face the dangers and boldly withstand the attack of the barbarians. Justin records his inevitable fate. Finally, however, the enemy's valor prevailed, and Antiochus was killed. He was 28 years old 
had ruled for nine remarkable years and accomplished almost every goal he'd ever set his mind to. With his death that day in the snows of Media, the Seleucid Empire lost its last real hope. For Phraates II, pulling off such a major miracle in the face of all his recent setbacks must have made him feel that the gods were back on side. And now that the Seleucid king was dead, he could... Oh, damn. Wait a minute. Did you guys, um, actually let Demetrius, you know, go free? Yeah, I know I told you to at the time, but... Oh, man, we need to get him back. Otherwise, history is going to record that I killed their king right after I sent them back a spare. Which looks really, really dumb, right? So ride those horses, like, super fast and bring him back here right now. According to Justin, Demetrius had been afraid of this very move on Frates' part, and the men sent after him found him already ensconced in his kingdom, which meant he'd cross back into Syria. So mark down that one in the negative column, but otherwise Frates had scored an enviable coup. While some of Antiochus's army escaped, the bulk were taken prisoner likely with the help of the cities they'd garrisoned, which sets the framework of occupying Parthians and liberating Seleucids on fairly shaky ground. On the whole, the major cities of Media and Mesopotamia reverted to Parthian control. Hyrcanus and the Judeans somehow managed to escape. Granger notes they may have been tasked with garrisoning Mesopotamia, and left for home on news of Antiochus's death. The Seleucid forces taken captive were a more complicated proposition, but at least one had a pretty straightforward use. As I mentioned last episode, one of Demetrius II's daughters, a royal princess named Laodice, had accompanied Antiochus on campaign. Justin reports that Phraates II took as his wife the daughter of Demetrius, for he had fallen in love with the girl. And I mean not to doubt true love, but it's also true that any offspring would be claimants to the Syrian throne. The honeymoon, to the extent there was one, was over pretty quick. Remember those Scythians that Phraates had hired to back him against Antiochus? Well, according to Justin... Since they arrived on the scene only when the battle was over and were cheated of their pay, they demanded either compensation for their inconvenience or another enemy to fight. Receiving a disdainful response, the Scythians took offense and proceeded to lay waste Parthian territory. So, Phraates put a pin in the west and prepared to head back to Parthia. Knowing how fearsome the Scythians could be, and depleted by losses in the recent war, Phraates was compelled to make a fateful decision. Just as he'd once enlisted Scythians to fight the Seleucids, he now planned to use his Seleucid captives to fight against the Scythians. It was evidently pure coercion. There's no mention of pay or promise of release, and relying on such dubious allies hints at desperation. 
Either way, in 128 BC, Phraates II led a combined army of Parthians and Seleucids into battle against the Scythians. The location of the engagement is unknown, and by this time it may have been a much bigger deal than a few disgruntled mercenaries. Large groups of Scythians had overrun Margiana and may have even been threatening Hecatompylos. In fact, even with his Seleucid conscripts, Phraates may have been vastly outnumbered. Leaving the Seleucids in reserve, Phraates and his Parthian forces faced down the Scythian advance. And, according to Justin, when they saw the Parthian line give ground, the Greeks went over to the enemy and took long-desired revenge for their captivity with a bloody massacre of the Parthian army. Among the victims, in a hail of arrows, swords, and spears, was the young Parthian king, Phraates II, who briefly tasted the glories of his father before following Antiochus to the grave. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And in our podcast, Ancient History Fangirl, we tell tall tales and true stories of the ancient world, misbehaving emperors, poison assassins, star-crossed lovers, and more. We go back to the original sources, dig into the latest archaeology, and get geeky about military history and mythology to bring you the ancient world like you've never heard it before. Check out ancienthistoryfangirl.com or find us at Ancient History Fangirl wherever you get your podcasts.